Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Now, if you're new with us, welcome, just to let you know what we're doing. Uh, I have taught through Philippians in the past, uh, verse by verse in depth. And so uh, we were, I was praying about what to do after John's gospel. And uh, I felt like the Lord was uh, laying on my heart to take Philippians, but teach it topically. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy, and so uh, I found every place in the book where the word joy and rejoice appeared, studied that uh, passage, and organized the uh, thought that Paul was expressing with regard to joy uh, in main points that we're taking one at a time. So far, we've looked at joy in fellowship, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Secondly, joy in proclaiming the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Last time we finished looking at joy of faith, uh, chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. And this morning we want to look at the fourth one, which is joy in unity. So start, let's start with verse 27, Philippians 1, where Paul said, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord and of one mind. And so again, guys, the heart of of Paul being expressed in this passage for the Philippians was that they would walk in unity with one another, that they would walk in unity with one another as the people of God. Seven times in these verses, Paul, uh, using various phrases, uh, expresses his hope that the Philippian Christians will walk in unity with one another. One spirit he talks about, one mind he uses twice, fellowship of of the spirit, like-minded, same love, one accord. All of these are the language of unity. And this is what was on Paul's heart as he was writing this epistle from prison, by the way. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and Philemon, all from prison, in prison in Rome, waiting to stand before Caesar. It's amazing that this epistle, the theme is joy which is quite amazing when you realize he's writing it from prison. But uh, why was unity so important to Paul? Why was it on his heart so much? Well, it was important, well, first of all, because he knew it was essential for our joy as Christians, but also it's essential for victory in our battle against the devil. So essential for victory is unity that our Lord Jesus Christ prayed for the night before his crucifixion. Uh, in John 17, you know, I might as well turn there. John 17, just hours from the cross, 
Jesus prayed to his Father. This was his final request. He prayed to his Father that his disciples would be one with each other after Jesus returned back to his Father in heaven. The Lord knew that this would be vital. Unity among his people would be vital for the success of their mission. Their mission is our mission. It's called the Great Commission. But Jesus knew that unity would be vital for the success of their mission when they went out from Jerusalem into the world preaching the gospel. Now, I'm going to read uh, John 17. Really, the whole passage is uh, verses 6 to 23. 6 to 23. I'm not going to read all those verses. I'm going to pick out the highlights. Um, and I'm going to read it to the NLT. Okay? So, starting with verse 6. Jesus is praying to his Father. I have revealed you, Father, to the ones you gave me out of the world. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you gave have given me out of the world, because they belong to you. Verse 11. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in the world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be unified. First time it's mentioned specifically. So that they will be unified just as we are. Verse 13. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. The whole context, guys, is he's praying for them, uh, for them to be victorious with regard to the spiritual warfare that was about to be unleashed on them when Jesus returned back to his Father in heaven. And it's all built around unity, just so you understand, all right? But the whole context, he's praying for their victory in the face of spiritual warfare. Verse uh, 16, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy. And again, guys, the word holy means set apart from the world, set apart from the world to God as a unit. So unity is involved in that concept too. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth, your word. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Do you realize the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for all of you, the night he went to the cross, before he went to the cross, he prayed for all of us. He said, Father, I'm not just praying for my guys that had followed me for the last three and a half years. I'm praying for all my disciples who would ever get saved through their ministries down through the centuries of the church age. Jesus prayed for us that night, hours before the cross. We were on his heart as well. Verse 21 I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as, as you and are in me, Father, and I am in you. 
and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. May they experience perfect unity so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Wow, that is quite a prayer. We looked at it in length uh, in John's Gospels. We studied John's Gospel. But guys, here Jesus is praying that the Father would keep his disciples in unity. Why was unity, the unity of his disciples then and now, so on his heart and mind that night? Well, because he first of all knew that unity leads to joy, just like Paul knew it. In fact, he mentions that directly in verse 13. Jesus does in John 17. But also, more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that unity leads to victory. There is strength in numbers is the idea, right? You know, selling first service, one single snowflake, not much to worry about. You put enough of them together, you can shut down a whole city. There is strength in unity, and the devil knows it. He can't defeat us as a group. He has to peel us away from the body and fight us one-on-one uh, -on -one individually. Jesus implied against his church, the gates of hell would never prevail, never be victorious, unless we allowed things to happen where we were no longer unified. But our Lord knew. He knew the importance of unity. And how it leads to victory, whereas disunity leads to strife and defeat. Guys, it's the devil's goal to create disunity and strife. Because he knows they create division. And division will destroy families, churches, and even whole nations. Of course, you know these. You don't have to turn to these. But Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house, which he's speaking of a family, divided against itself will not stand. He said in Mark 3, verses 24 and 5, A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. Very simply, guys, unity is of the Holy Spirit, whereas division is of the devil whose main strategy is to divide and conquer and make no mistake about it he has to first divide us before he can conquer us let me tell you something about unity that's the whole topic joy in unity let me tell you something about unity it's impossible without humility now we've talked about this before but i'd like to revisit it this morning Unity is essential for victory, but you'll never have unity without humility. Here's the problem with humility. Nobody wants to hear about it today. You know, you, people think of humility in our country as weakness. You know? Um, humility is for, is for wimps. Uh, only people that are not tough have to have humility because they're not strong enough Arnold Schwarzenegger was never called humble. Not in any of the movies I've seen. But see, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not the one we're following. We're following Jesus, who's much stronger than him and walked in great humility, which we'll see in just a second. But let me just tell you this about biblical humility. 
First of all, understand that humility is listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. You know Galatians 5, 22 and 3, where Paul is listing the fruits of the Spirit, but they're really the attributes of God. That's the point. They are the attributes of God, all right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, humility, and self-control. You know, when Jesus walked on the earth, he bore all the fruits of the Holy Spirit in his life. He even, well, including and especially humility, which he manifested even before he came to the earth, even before he came to the earth, before his incarnation, incarnation uh, he manifested humility. Turn to uh, Philippians 2, you're in the neighborhood, verse 5, where Paul the Apostle said, Philippians 2, verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, verse 8 tells us he humbled himself further in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Let me say it again. Unity would be impossible without humility, and humility would be impossible without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's because humility is an attribute of God. Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1.4, Once we accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit moved in, and at that instant we became partakers of God's divine nature. God lives, was living inside of us now. And now we have the capacity to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit because he's living inside of us. He's planted in our hearts. And therefore we have, that doesn't mean just because we have the capacity to have love, joy, peace, and so on, we're going to naturally and automatically walk in that, at those attributes. We have to keep staying close to the Lord in the word, in fellowship with God's people. Again, if Satan can peel you away from the body, uh, he's going to, work you over where have you been i haven't seen you in a few weeks i'm just taking a little break from god you're taking a break from god? is that what you're telling me that is foolishness you're not doing well something's going on that you're not doing well that's the time you get your butt in the church without any hesitation humility is an attribute of god an attribute that jesus manifested throughout his life on the earth but especially when he went to the cross and laid down his life as holy God for sinful, fallen people. That's humility. You know, the pagans, they sacrificed people to the gods. Christianity hit the pagan world like a ton of bricks. Because here was a God who sacrificed himself for people. That was quite a difference. We take it for granted. We've known it. The church has for 2,000 years. Can you imagine if you lived in that Greco-pagan first century world, Greco-Roman Greco pagan first century world, to hear of a God who loved you so much, he died for you? The Greeks said the gods were apathia. They were apathetic. They didn't care about people. But here was a God who not only cared, he did something about it. He came down and he died. Unity comes when we humble ourselves. And I'm talking about unity in the body of Christ now comes when we humble ourselves by dying to self 
in loving and forgiving those who have wronged us or have hurt us. And we choose to have unity with them, listen, in spite of their flaws and faults and so on. This is also true in marriage. You can choose to focus on each other's faults and flaws, nitpick and, you know, focus on these things and wind up divided from each other. Or you can realize that we're all sinners saved by grace, whether a marriage or a church. And you know what? <laughs> Do we think we're so perfect that we're, you know, putting up with everybody? You know? I mean, look, we're all guilty of being insensitive, selfish, proud, doing things that hurt others, especially our spouse. Let's ask God to give us grace to be better husbands and wives, but also grace to be more forgiving as husbands and wives because we want to focus on, we want to come together against the enemy and not against each other because the enemy is pushing buttons and so on. But I know some of you might be thinking, but I just can't forgive them, whoever they are, for what they did to me. Can I just say something we've talked about before, but I think it fits really well here. Understand that forgiveness isn't earned, it's bestowed. It's bestowed. It's given as a gift to those who have wronged us, even if they don't ask for our forgiveness or even deserve it. What am I thinking of? I'm thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on Calvary's cross. From the cross, he forgave those who put them there. Excuse me, who put him there. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They didn't ask for his forgiveness. They certainly weren't worthy of his forgiveness. But he still forgave them. And he's our example, isn't he? And I know some of you have been really hurt in some way. I know that. I'm not minimizing that. And some of you still might be thinking, I know what you're saying, Pastor, but I, I just can't let go. I can't forgive them for what they did to me. Well, if you can't forgive them for their sake, how about you forgive them for Jesus' sake? I mean, are we going to deny the Lord Jesus Christ's last request before he went to the cross, which was unity? Are we going to deny him that because we're holding on to anger and bitterness and so on? I mean, I, there's a lot of things I can't do for people that I could do for Jesus Christ. At our men's retreat, our speaker told us a story of a young woman, beautiful young woman, who was working in a leper colony, ministering to lepers. And a pretty to-do man visited that leper colony and saw her working among these lepers, touching them, bandaging them, loving them. And he said to her, I couldn't do what you're doing for a million dollars. And she said, neither could I. I'm doing it for Jesus. So many Christians have a hard time though, letting go. And you know why? And again, I'm not minimizing anyone's pain. Some of you have been hurt. I, I was in a Christian bookstore years ago and they had a video playing. On one of the TVs. Beautiful young woman, Christian singer, 
was giving her testimony in front of a gigantic crowd, concert. And she told the story about how her mother had chained her to her bed every day, beat her, didn't feed her properly. She went on for years. But then the young woman, and eventually she was released. She got bigger, older. And she received Christ. And Jesus came in and took that pain and took it away and replaced it with a love for her mom. And she prayed for her mom. She was talking about how her mom eventually got saved. I mean, I, I know that some people have been very hurt by others, fathers abusing their daughters, which I can't even get my mind around. All as I know is Jesus Christ can come inside and release. Don't let people victimize you a single day longer through unforgiveness. If you don't forgive them, they're living in your head rent-free. And the pain and the abuse continues every single day. Let go of it. Give it to Jesus and say, Lord, I can't be healed of this hurt, but you can come and take it away from me. And I ask you to do that and replace it with love for this person. Because I want to see them saved. Now, let me at this point define for you what true humility is. And again, we've talked about this, so bear with me if you have heard us talk about this in the past. And remember that this is in the larger context of knowing the joy of unity. But we've got to talk about humility first because unity is impossible without humility. So what is true humility? Well, let me just say this. True humility isn't going around putting yourself down everywhere you go. I say that because a lot of Christians think that being humble means that you go around, you know, putting yourself down all the time. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm a worm. Well, that might be. I don't know. I'm, I don't know you that much, but, you know, we're all worthless. I mean, I mean, we're all worms, you know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I'm a worm, right? But we all know that. I just don't want to hear you say it incessantly to me every time we're together. I know it. God knows it. Can we leave it at that? Okay? I mean, often this, that kind of self-deprecation is nothing more than pride masquerading as, humili as humility. That's all it is. You know, Jesus said, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus Christ was the epitome of humility. But he certainly wasn't a worthless worm. And he certainly didn't go around putting himself down all the time everywhere he went. Oh, Lord, you're so wonderful. No. I'm a worm. Can you imagine that? You didn't hear Jesus talk about himself at all, did you? He talked about his father. He taught the word. He never exalted himself. I mean, he, he identified himself. I'm God. You have to believe that I'm God to get to heaven. But, you know, the disciples weren't out waving pom-poms and saying, come to see Jesus. He's so wonderful, you know. That kind of thing, right? Yeah, there's churches out there, I feel like I, they're this far away from the, the staff taking pom-poms and cheering on the pastor. It's like, you know what? Too many celebrities in the church. God help us. The church doesn't need celebrities. It needs servants. Servants that act like Jesus did. All right? 
But, um, guys, humility isn't self-loathing. It's not beating up yourself all the time. It's definitely not uh, low self-esteem. Some people confuse everything and want to kind of lump it in there. Genuine humility doesn't focus on self at all. It doesn't put self down. It doesn't lift self up. True humility simply ignores self altogether and focuses its attention on others, very simply. Now, as we have said in the past, humility has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to it. First of all, the vertical dimension. Vertical humility deals with our relationship with God. Vertical humility deals with our relationship to God. Vertical humility is simply the quality that understands I am weak and I can do nothing apart from God. Jesus said this about us in John 15, verse 5. John 15, 5. But vertical humility understands I am weak and I can do nothing apart from God. This causes me to depend on him for everything and my model becomes when i am weak then i am strong it does take a measure of humility to come to that point because as americans you know we think we can handle anything just give me enough time i can deal with i can handle it it takes a long time especially for american christians who are very self-reliant and independent to come to a place of such brokenness and surrender, they stop trying to do for God. Watch me, Lord. Stand back. I'll handle it. And God is saying, oh, my goodness. You know, he wants us to surrender and not go on thinking that we can do whatever it is. I just need a little boost, Lord. I can make it up the wall pretty much by myself. Just give me a little boost over the... No, God says you can't do anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? No thing, nothing. And if I think, well, it takes a certain amount of humility to accept that truth. Uh, but without it, pride takes root. and We become self-reliant instead of God-dependent. That's a problem, a big problem. As a result, God will put us on a shelf if we think we are doing the work of God in our own strength and we deserve any credit. God will put us up on a shelf take us out of the work until we come to a place where we humble ourselves before God and he then will put us back into the work he wants to do through our lives. That's um, vertical humility. Horizontal humility deals with our relationship to others. All right, So our fellow man, uh, you know, horizontal humility. And it simply says to those we come in contact with and minister to, you are more important to me than I am. Again, we're talking about humility. Most people think humility is put myself down, right? No, true humility doesn't even focus on me. It says you are more important to me than I am. Therefore, your needs come before my needs. If I can help you in some way, I'm going to do that. I'm going to sacrifice for you, which is... God's agape love and operation, by the way. But this is exactly what Paul the Apostle commanded believers in Philippians 2, verse 3, when he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. 
Guys, when you constantly put others above yourself and you do what's best for them and not yourself, you'll discover how easy it becomes to walk in unity with others. Think about that. If we're all dying to self, if we're all putting each other above ourselves, there's going to be great unity because all of the conflict in the church or in marriage comes when we put ourselves above others. Our pride kicks in. We want to get what's coming to us. We want, you know, and so we, we, we walk in this pride and all, and it creates conflict. Any group where someone's always putting themselves first above others, there's going to be some division and some problems there. Um, but the reason when we, when we, you know, keep putting others above ourselves and do what's best for them and not for ourselves, uh, we'll discover how easy it becomes to walk in unity with others. And the reason is because by you dying to self, it circumvents any attempt. The, the devil is going to try to use pride, right? Uh, selfishness, self-glory. He's going to try to use those things to get in there. And if he can get you to fall to those things, pride and selfishness and so on, it'll get in the way of your unity with others and in the process cause strife and division. The devil wants to divide and conquer. Now, he will if we let him. I was telling first service years ago, when I was a young pastor, the church was doing well, it was growing. And I had a couple of elders at that time, uh, good men, but I found out that a group within the church was kind of gravitating towards them, looking to them as their pastors. It even came to my attention they were planning on leaving the church to start their own church. Now look, I like to think I've walked in humility more today than I used to. But back then, young pastor, I got to tell you, I got in the flesh pretty quick. Good guys, but how dare they steal my sheep? But I went and sought the Lord. I really did with all my heart. I said, Lord, I know they're not bad guys, but Lord, they're stealing my sheep. The Lord said, whose sheep? <laughs> Your sheep? See, I thought they were my sheep. Well, I guess, yeah, okay. But they're coming to my church. Well, but the Lord told me, he said, Phil, I'm allowing this. The end result is going to be two strong churches, not just one. So here's, a, here's the deal. If you fight it and cause the division to become very, you know, onerous, the devil's going to win. If you embrace this as being of me and go along with it, the devil won't be able to win. So I think they were planning on leaving in about three weeks. And so that next Sunday morning, I got up and I, I, uh, I uh, announced the new church. I said, anybody from our church that lives in the area, or you don't have to live in the area, if you want to attend the new church, that's fine. We are behind this, this work of God. And for the next three weeks, as you write your check out to this church, if you're going to be leaving and going to the new church, and you write new church in the memo, we will put the money aside and give it to the group when they leave. Why, that, that shut the devil down completely. I'm sure he was like, oh, man. 
because he wanted me to react in the flesh, which initially I did, but God quickly showed me. Phil, you're all working for my kingdom. And you need to support the work of my kingdom. And so God used it to teach me some great lessons. From that point, we had four or five churches that came out of our church and went out into different places. You know, you get your hands too much on God's work, he'll pry your fingers off of it because it's not our work, it's not our kingdom, it's his work, it's his kingdom. You circumvent the devil who's trying to divide and conquer when you can work with people out of love, humility, and go forward and try to work together in whatever it is you're doing. But again, God's word teaches that unity is impossible without humility. And guys, the devil could never sow discord and division into a family or a church without pride. Pride being the opposite of humility. James warns us in James 3 verse 16. For where envy and evil, or excuse me, where envy and self-seeking exist. So where envy and pride exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Again, unity leads to victory, whereas division leads to defeat, which is why God has such strong condemnations for those, especially in the church, who sow discord and disunity among brethren. You, of course, remember Proverbs 6, verse 19, lists the seven sins that God hates above all sins, right? And one on the list is one who sows discord among brethren. I don't know if Christians understand something that sowing discord in a church, God takes very seriously because it's, it's dividing his body, the body that Jesus died to make a reality. One who sows discord among brethren, one of the top sins that God hates. And because unity is essential for victory over the devil, spiritual warfare, God commands us to do all we can do to promote unity in the body of Christ. You know, guys, one of the greatest chapters, excuse me, yes, one of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest, uh, on Christian unity uh, is it, uh, in the New Testament comes out of Ephesians 4. Why don't you turn there? We're only going to touch on it this morning because we need to lay some foundational material. But one of the greatest, if not the greatest, passages on Christian unity in the New Testament comes out of Ephesians 4. Now, in Ephesians 4, Paul spends the first 16 verses stressing the importance of unity as being essential if we are to properly represent and serve Jesus as his body on the earth till his return. In Ephesians 4, verses 3 and 13, verses 3 and verse 13, Paul talks about the basis for our unity with one another as believers in Christ. He talks in verse 3, he says, the endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in verse 13, he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. And so in these verses, Paul speaks of two kinds of Christian unity. Unity of the Spirit and unity of the faith. I'd like to look at those over the next couple of weeks. Because if we don't understand unity, we'll never derive any joy from it. We have to understand what it is, how it functions, and so on. So let's look, starting with the first one, unity of the Spirit. Unity of the Spirit, 
Uh, let me read verses 1 to 3, Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Guys, that's the language of humility. And that's essential to finally achieve unity, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the Greek, verse 3 of Ephesians 4 reads literally, being eager to maintain or guard the unity of the Spirit. And the Greek verb used here is a present participle, which means we must constantly be endeavoring to maintain this unity. Why? Because it will, it will constantly be under attack from the devil. Especially, listen now, especially in marriage. And that is why Jesus prayed to his Father for us on the night before his crucifixion, that we as his people would always walk in unity with each other. He knew it was essential for victory, and no victory is more important than your marriage because families are built on marriages. Churches are built on families. If the devil can take out marriages, he can destroy families, he can destroy the church, and ultimately our nation, which we're seeing the breakdown of, of the family resulting in the breakdown of our society. But Paul picked up on the heart of Jesus with regard to unity among God's people in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks of the importance of maintaining our unity as Christians. But then in verses 4 to 6, he goes on to give us the seven spiritual realities that make up our unity and bind us together as one body. And so verses 4 to 6 there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in y'all. I didn't realize Paul was from southern Israel. We're only going to look at this first one. But these are the realities. Okay, verses 4 to 6, Paul names the seven spiritual realities. They unite all true Christians together. These are only available for the body of Christ. But not just churchgoers, true Christians. Okay? One body. He talks about unity, first of all, in terms that we are one body. Of course, this is referring to the body of Christ, containing all true believers that are spread across the world down through the centuries from Pentecost to the rapture. That's the church age. Uh, Jesus is the head of the body from which the body draws its life and direction. We'll have a lot more to say about that next time. But the, the great theme of the epistle to the Philippians, excuse me, the great theme of the epistle to the Ephesians is in Christ. In Christ. Guys, to be in Christ means to be a member of his body and members of one another as truly and as in intimately as the organs of a human body are knit together and function together as a single unit for the health and overall function of that body. The unity that we share as Christians far transcends the organizational or social unity the world embraces. I mean, the world knows of unity, but not like us. 
The world has its gatherings. The world has organizations built around a common theme or uh, whatever it is. Our unity is different. Ours is a spiritual unity. Ray Stedman said, and I'll finish with this, but Ray Stedman said, Here's the fundamental error of modern ecumenical movements. By and large, they strive to generate a man-made institutional unity, ignoring the spiritual unity that already exists in the Holy Spirit. The church is not a conglomeration of individuals who happen to agree upon certain things. It is bound together as a spiritual organism in a body, excuse me, in a bodily unity. It cannot, therefore, derive power from the sum of its numbers. It derives its power solely from the Spirit of God who binds these individuals into a unified spiritual whole, end quote. We'll pick that up next week, God willing. But I want to just end by talking about marriage once again. We talk about oneness. We just talked about, Paul said, we have unity because we belong to one body body of Christ, the church, which is, spiritual, is a spiritual entity. But as Christians, that oneness also extends to our marriages. When we were married to our spouse, the Bible says we became one with them. Now that was illustrated physically in the act of lovemaking. But spiritually, God knit us together. Remember what God has joined, let no man separate. The Greek word is divorce. So God joined us together as one. And Satan wants to divide us so he can conquer our marriages, destroy our families, bring our churches down. There's a lot riding on your marriage making it. Oh, we'll just find other people. Well, that's the common mentality today. And guys, can I say this? If you have been married if you have been married and you got divorced for whatever reason maybe you're remarried now this is not about throwing guilt or condemnation on you make this new marriage work for the glory of god make the one you're in right now work don't say well it's not working out we're just going to end it and we'll find somebody new that does not glorify god I mean, sometimes it's necessary in cases of abuse and things. But God, God is a, um, a restorer. God is a builder. He wants to, to make what you have more beautiful than it ever has been. Right? Let me just end with this. A few weeks ago, I was praying about marriages in our church. And... God gave me an acronym for a marriage seminar. It was the acronym WIN, W-I-N. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that represents, not yet. We're trying to find a date soon where we can have a little, just a very simple little conference Friday night, Saturday end at noon. And I think I'm going to use some kind of a tagline. If you want to win in marriage, Come to the seminar, something like that, okay? He gave me the W and the I right away, the N. He gave me the, I said, Lord, I can't think of an N word. 
If this is your acronym, you, you, you have something for the end. You gave me the win. First two right away. Then it hit me. He gave me that final word. And at first I thought, it doesn't seem like it really fits that well. After I thought about it for a few minutes, no, it fits perfectly. Because he doesn't make any mistakes, right? So we'll announce when we're going to have this little seminar. And I don't want you to get all your hopes built up like it's going to be something you've never heard before. I got to go. It's going to be fantastic stuff we've never heard before. What did Peter say? I know I'm telling you things you've already heard, but I think sometimes you need to be put in remembrance. We'll get to that soon. But keep our current study in prayer. So important yet so lacking in the church, we are seeing the divisions in the world coming into the church. It's sad to see it. But we don't have to allow it. We can fight against it because Jesus has promised us victory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. But we thank you for our Savior especially who died on Calvary's cross that we might have forgiveness of sins and a unity that the world could never understand with one another. We thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.